Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, one of the key objectives of the Affordable Care Act is to improve the quality of care by rewarding practices for better outcomes with financial incentives. Well, that's right, Mark. And within three years, the Obama administration wants the quality of care delivered to be considered for nine out of $10 of reimbursements for treating Medicare patients, 90% of all dollars. Wow. The new financial incentives for doctors called a physician value-based payment modifier allows the federal government to boost or lower the amount it reimburses doctors based on how they score on some 250 quality measures, as well as how much their patients cost Medicare. Well, more than 1,100 large practices participated in the first year of the program, Mark. And, you know, the results, some say, were disappointing. Only 14 of the participating large practice groups are receiving an increase in compensation for improved quality. Most saw no change at all, and we'll see their compensation remain flat. And 11 practices, they scored low enough to see their compensation actually decline. Hmm. It's only the first year of the program. It only applies to large practices now. But, Margaret, I suspect within a few years the data collection will be easier, though some participating practices are expressing disappointment for what all of their quality reporting efforts, uh, they really didn't see a lot of changes. Well, I agree, Mark. And so much of what we're seeing in healthcare constitutes a change in culture. And the results are going to take time. Certainly, you know, one question many people raise is, did we get the measures right? Mm-hmm. And that's an area that will get a lot of attention. So we feel for them in that. But our guest today is very involved in changing the culture of healthcare from a technology standpoint. Dr. Larry Chu is the executive director of Stanford Medicine X and is seeking to catalyze health tech development that will foster more patient-centered care as we move forward. Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org, looks at more false claims spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter or CHC Radio because we love to hear from you. We'll get to our interview with Dr. Larry Chu in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. The end of April is approaching, which means a closing window for uninsured Americans to gain health coverage or pay a larger penalty at tax time next year. The federal government allowed for the extended open enrollment, noting that while some 16.4 million Americans have gained coverage under the health care law, some 20 million remain uninsured. This year's tax penalty for remaining uninsured in 2014 is $95 or 1% of income. Next year's penalty for remaining uninsured past this year's April 30th deadline, $350 or 2% of income. And what about what the coverage is supposed to cover? The mental health parity law, which passed in 2008, was supposed to ensure patients seeking treatment for mental health or addiction issues would gain coverage that was on par with other medical and surgical care they receive. But until recently, the government only outlined how such parity would apply to commercial plans. Federal officials recently released a new rule governing mental health coverage for folks gaining coverage through Medicaid or CHIP, which are funded jointly by state and federal agencies. The proposal would mean that plans no longer would have hard limits on coverage, such as a certain number of mental health visits per year. And if a patient were to be denied treatment for a mental health or substance abuse disorder, the insurer would have to explain why. 
Leading behavioral health activist, former Rhode Island Congressman Patrick Kennedy called the new rule long overdue. And even with mental health parity rules in effect under private insurance, coverage, he says, is still difficult to obtain. There's still considered a significant shortage of mental health providers and services for the Medicaid population. The ECRI Institute is out with its top 10 warnings on technology hazards and patient safety. And alarm fatigue tops the list. Providers inundated with constant alarms from electronic health records are overriding at least half of the typical number of alerts they receive. Next up, infusion pump medication errors, followed by CT radiation exposure in pediatric patients. The Institute is also out with its top tech predictions for 2015. Disinfectant robots top the list using infrared and other antimicrobials to reduce hospital-acquired infections, which lead to some 75,000 deaths per year. The robots using new techniques such as ultraviolet light and hydrogen peroxide sprays to disinfect. And on the topic of alarm fatigue, the increase of so-called middleware, software aimed at running interference and sorting through which alarms should make it to the clinician. Google Glass may not become a ubiquitous wearable in a general population, but is being retooled specifically for use in the clinical setting. Expect to see an increase in head-mounted technologies and expect dramatic growth in telehealth technologies that will require a rethinking of workflow and other care delivery models. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Larry Chu, a practicing physician and associate professor of anesthesia at Stanford University School of Medicine. He's the executive director of Stanford's Medicine X, a conference seeking to inform the development of technology poised to have an impact on the future of medicine and patient-centered healthcare. Dr. Chu runs several labs at Stanford, including the Opioid Physiology Lab, as well as the Anesthesia and Informatics Media Lab at Stanford, where he conducts research on the impact of technology on medicine and medical training. Dr. Chu was the winner of several awards from the National Institute of Health, including the R01 and R13, and an Independent Science Award. He earned his MS in Epidemiology at Stanford and his MD at Stanford School of Medicine. Dr. Chu, welcome to Conversations on Health. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and you're located in one of the most fertile regions in the world. Not in water, though, <laughs> uh, in technology and in innovation. So uh, Stanford, obviously, in the shadow of uh, Silicon Valley. And you founded Stanford's Medicine X with an idea that innovation in medicine and healthcare needs far more participation in interaction from the patient perspective. Can you tell our listeners what was the catalyst that spurred you to launch this innovative conference? And who are uh, and were some of the early participants? And what were some of your initial goals? Sure thing. You know, I think it really started about five years ago when I did my first conference at Stanford. And during that time, I had many people contact me on social media. And one of those people happened to be Hugo Campos. He's actually from the Bay Area. He's a, a patient um, who has an internal cardiac defibrillator and, and has actually been treated at Stanford. And he approached me on social media. We met in person. And, you know, one of the things that we talked about is why isn't it that uh, patients are represented at uh, academic medical conferences, uh, especially because, you know, we, we meet specifically to improve things for everyone, including patients. Yeah, patients didn't have a seat at the table. 
So uh, based on that series of conversations, I made a plan where my first conference at Stanford uh, was going to include patients. And I actually uh, sat them up front, right in front of uh, the, the main stage. And we had an incredible experience. Um, incredible insights were gained. Um, a lot of empathy was gained for everyone who attended on both sides, uh, both patients and healthcare providers. And, uh, so when I decided to do Medicine X, I made a commitment from day one that uh, at least 10% of the seats were going to go to patients. And so we created a scholarship program, and um, the rest is history, as they say. Wow. Well, I uh, really applaud you for that. And I, w- I want to talk a little bit more about this patient-centered approach that you've fostered at MedicineX. And I think, am I right that yours uh, was the first to act, the first conference to actively engage participants from a variety of patient organizations like Patients Like Me, 23andMe, Smart Patients, all uh, groups I think we've had on the show or focused on on the show, and all organizations made up of people who found vital connections, support, camaraderie, information uh, among folks facing similar challenges. And in the process, of course, giving researchers and developers as well as other patients an incredible platform to share information but maybe you could share with our listeners what were some of the insights. You said you developed new insights and certainly empathy, but tell us a little bit more about those new insights that have been gained by bringing together researchers, technology developers, and patients to collaborate in your forum. Well, I, I think first step is really understanding who's part of the conversation. And uh, so our, our friends at Simpler, which is a social media analytics firm, pulled some some analyses for us on the type of conversations that happen at healthcare conferences. And what they noticed is that um, when they looked at all conferences across healthcare, um, and they looked at the voices in those conversations, 9% are physicians and 1% are patients and the rest are third parties. So it really looks uh, like an industry talking to itself. And, you know, the the whole uh, mission of Medicine X is to ask what can happen when all stakeholders are at the table, and especially when we look at outside of healthcare or traditionally people who've been excluded from um, healthcare decisions uh, and leadership, patients, and if we bring them to the table and we have a conversation, what happens? So when you look at the conversation stakeholder mix at Medicine X, you see something quite different. You see about a third patient, a third healthcare provider, and the rest our third party. And so that does change the conversation mm-hmm. because we talk differently in healthcare and medicine when when everyone's at the table. Uh, and I think it changes the perspective and it changes the ideas that happen. It makes, I think, everyone focus a little bit more on how might we work on problems that really matter mm-hmm. to patients, how might we focus on problems that really matter to physicians, and, and less on here's this cool technology and, and everybody's going to love it and it's going to disrupt healthcare. But we, we really want to bring the conversation back to why we're all doing it in the first place. Hmm. Uh, well, speaking of folks who, who talk differently, uh, health tech developers are, are clearly adding thousands of health-related products to the marketplace from the ever-increasing number of wearables to sensors and apps that monitor health. I don't know about you, but I'm getting daily emails about the Apple Watch. Obviously, this is an area 
that is probably overwhelming to the average consumer. We just had Dr. Walker on the show uh, talking about his new book, The Digital Doctor, in which there's a potential harm, he says, in adopting too much technology too soon. So tell our listeners how uh, Medicine X serves to guide these developers as they seek to create technology that really truly benefits patients. Sure. Um, you know, one interesting story that was written about recently uh, I don't know if, if you have been following Apple. They launched something called Research Kit, uh, and it really seeks to democratize medical research by letting anyone participate through their smartphone. And um, so the article um, that was written talks about the genesis of that idea and how it actually started three years ago at Medicine X. And it was the conversation that happened. Um, after a main stage talk by Stephen Friend from Sage Bio, uh, Bio Networks. And, um, and the idea was really bringing patients into the research process by really allowing anyone to, to participate and share their data. So when you have technologists and your researchers in the room, uh, even if the technology, the Apple Watch three years ago wasn't ready for prime time, uh, those ideas are planted, those plans are made, and, and we see new things moving uh, to the market mm-hmm. that uh, capitalize on these ideas of patient centricity. I, I think also there is a lot of challenges here uh, in understanding how we can thoughtfully use technology for healthcare, and I think patients can really help with that. Uh, patients the, the e-patients, engaged patients that work with us at MedicineX, they, in my mind, are really those market leaders, those people who are um, six to 12 months ahead of everyone else in terms of what's going to be mainstream and what they're doing today is going to be what people will be doing uh, in six to 12 months, uh, whether that's self-tracking, whether that is hacking their own devices to add functionality like Dana Lewis is doing with Night Scout, um, to um, advocating for open access and sharing of data like Hugo Campos does um, in terms of gaining access to the data that's stored in his own implantable defibrillator device. And so what technology industry um, needs to do is really to think differently about how they develop these digital health technologies, many of which are being developed by Samsung, Microsoft, Google, Apple, consumer electronic companies. And we have to help them understand that the way you develop for digital health is not the same way you develop consumer electronics. And creating uh, a health tracking device um, that patients with chronic conditions use isn't the same context as creating a television for your living room. And oftentimes, the solution you engineer for one disease, diabetes, is not going to be the same solution as someone who has rheumatoid arthritis or multiple sclerosis. And that's the real challenge, I think. Dr. Chu, there are so many threads in so many directions I'd like to pull together based on just your uh, your thoughts so far. But You've said yourself, I think, that there's a challenge in communicating the right ideas to the medical innovation community and that technologists are often confused about how the process of medical innovation works. Certainly, all of us, uh, you know, who've been in healthcare learned a long time ago that it would be 17 years from the discovery of something in the lab to its applicability 
at the bedside. But that that really doesn't seem to apply so much anymore in our current area of development with everything developing so rapidly. I know in uh, in Mark's introduction, he talked about your work with the opioid physiology lab. So I'm going I'm to make a jump stretch here, and you tell me if I've jumped too far off the court. But here you are engaged uh, in something which the issue of opioids, the use of opioids, the overuse of opioids, the misuse, addiction, uh, death from opioid uh, overdosage now being one of the leading causes of death in the young adult population in some states. Can you pull the thread for us a little bit on how does your work on the one hand in that kind of bench science area and the engagement of patients, technologists, innovators on the other come together? Are you looking to draw any connection in that particular area? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, in, in some ways, there are two parts of my life that operate in parallel universes. Uh, and in another part, there is a thread that I want to I pull and I want to connect them. Great. Um, I think it's very much a story about how science used to be done and how science might be done better. Uh, so the work that I've done in opioids, you know, that's all funded through traditional National Institutes of Health funding mechanisms. And, and and as you say, it's a very long process to bring uh, even translational clinical researches, which is what I do versus basic science, uh, to real solutions at the bedside. It's something that I think reflects, you know, the tremendous resources that are needed to do the type of work that I've done where I'm looking at opioids in humans and all the inherent risks that causes and the type of um, medical supervision that that requires. And we somehow have to find uh, a compromise between the two when we look at digital health. In terms of my own work in opioid use, uh, I imagine, for instance, how um, it took me you know, five years to study 150 patients. Uh, and then I look at uh, Apple launched the research kit platform and I think in you know a matter of weeks they had tens of thousands of patients uh-huh. uh, signing up and completing these studies, and so I asked myself, "Gosh, this is a new model of science, and um, and we're going to need people that can bridge these two worlds, and, and hopefully, you know, I have some experience on both sides to bring in other people do as well, but there is a powerful model of the, you know, the well-designed randomized placebo-controlled study." there has to be some way that we can connect the two. And I think people are trying to figure that out right now. We're speaking today with Dr. Larry Chu, a practicing physician and associate professor of anesthesia at Stanford University School of Medicine. He is also the executive director of Stanford's Medicine X, a conference seeking to inform the development of technology poised to have an impact on the future of medicine and patient-centered health care. Dr. Chu runs several labs at Stanford, including the Opioid Physiology Lab, as well as the Anesthesia and Informatics Media Lab, where he conducts research on the impact of technology on medicine and medical training. And, you know, you've been uh, at Medicine X become much more than a yearly conference during your uh, few short years, and it's now become a year-long information sharing and training platform for all interested parties around the globe to tap in. I'd love to know more about that. I know we've been very engaged in some of the uh, exciting work that Sanjeev Arora had been doing with uh, Project Echo. 
And I'm wondering sort of that, that sort of that new model of uh, science or delivery. What tools are you using? Where's your reach? Uh, who's able to engage in this process? You know, one of these new tools that we need to do a better job of using uh, in medicine and in medical education is social media. Uh, the example that I give is uh, Medicine X. You know, we are a conference that takes place on a Stanford campus. We're a traditional academic conference, but the reach doesn't stop um, at the the 500 people in the room. Last year, those 500 people through social media generated 190 million social media impressions, uh, reached five and a half million unique individuals. Uh, our video live stream reached um, 69 countries, and we trended number one on Twitter all three days of the conference. So uh, social media is a powerful way to disseminate information, uh, to amplify knowledge, um, and we're not using it enough in in medical education and in healthcare. And those are some of the things that, that you know we're trying to do. We're trying to lead by example on this. But I think, like many things, it's also changing the culture of uh, medicine. Uh, and, um, and social media is certainly one, I think, underutilized resource. In addition, um, we are also moving online to massive open online courses. Mm-hmm. Uh, Medicine X started our academy initiative last year, where we are launching a series of courses through Stanford's OpenX, Open edX MOOC platform. And then we're now uh, in the final stages of um, getting approval from the dean's office to allow us to provide certificates for people who complete a series of our courses from the Medicine X Academy. And they're all on topics that are gaps in medical education from uh, patient-centered participatory medicine to uh, a course on um, design principles and design thinking for healthcare. Uh, We have a course called Engage and Empower Me that's um, looking at uh, patient engagement and behavior change. So the idea is for us to kind of create uh, uh, another curriculum online to help supplement those gaps that we see um, in the healthcare curriculum. So, Dr. Chu, with all of that, what's next for Medicine X? You've had amazing participants uh, in the past talking about telemedicine, mobile technology, redesigning healthcare spaces, patient empowerment. So, what's on the agenda for this year? This year, um, well, I think part of part of um, what we're going to see really reflects uh, what our patients are seeing, and um, our uh, Medicine X not only has patients in the audience and on the stage. But they're on our planning committee, and they help. Uh, they're on our executive board, and they help us also determine the direction and the core themes of of uh, what we explore each year. Uh, this year, we're um, going to have a core theme on uh, precision medicine, uh-huh. uh, as well as a core theme on population health, but uh-huh. from the patient perspective, uh-huh. uh, which people rarely consider. Uh, to also um, one on growing up, aging, and adjusting, and looking at healthcare across a lifespan and what that means. <clears throat> and um, also, we have a core theme on misconceptions and misperceptions, looking at stigmas in healthcare uh-huh. and how they can 
that impacts um, the quality and the type of care that we receive. We also have another core theme on um, on, uh, on payers and, and looking at payers as partners in healthcare. And for any of our uh, listeners who might want to try and join on, can you just share with us when it, when the conference starts? Sure thing. We uh, our main Medicine X conference uh, runs September twenty fifth to twenty seventh, twenty fifteen, uh, on the Stanford campus. And then we have our new conference, which looks at the future of medical education. Uh, from then, that runs September twenty third and twenty fourth. We've been speaking with Dr. Larry Chu, Associate Professor of Anesthesia at Stanford University School of Medicine and Executive Director of Stanford Medicine X, a unique conference seeking to catalyze health tech development with a focus on patient-centered care. You can learn more about his work by going to medicinex.stanford.edu, or you can follow him on Twitter at Larry Chu, C-H-U. Dr. Chu, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, Kentucky Senator Rand Paul has now officially declared that he will run for president. Paul's April 7th announcement prompted us to take a look back at claims by Paul that we have reviewed in the past, and some concern health care. In 2013, for instance, Paul wrongly said that under the Affordable Care Act, you will go to jail if you don't buy health insurance and refuse to pay the tax penalty. The law actually states that those who don't pay the penalty for not having insurance can't be subject to any criminal prosecution. Shortly after the law passed, the IRS commissioner at the time said the law precludes jail. The law also says that the IRS can't use liens or levies to enforce payment of the penalty. What can the IRS do to enforce compliance? The commissioner said in 2010 that violators could face offsets against future tax refunds. More recently, in February, Paul talked about vaccinations in a TV interview, wrongly saying that many children have developed profound mental disorders after vaccinations. We found that severe reactions have occurred in extremely rare cases, but there is no evidence that any currently recommended vaccine causes mental disorders in otherwise healthy children. Paul later walked back his comments, telling the New York Times that he believes vaccines are safe and effective. And that's my fact check for this week. For more on past claims from Senator Rand Paul, visit our website at factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Falling is a common experience among the elderly, and that is not good news. Hip fractures in the elderly are an enormous, devastating, expensive death sentence of an injury. If you're over 65 and you've fallen and broken your hip, 25% of them will die within 12 months. 
Another 25% will never be able to live independently, and a full 75% will never regain full mobility. That statistic got former airbag executive Drew Lucatos thinking, what if you could apply the technology used in airbags to create wearable devices that protect a person from the impact of falling? Hip fractures in the elderly are unlike other diseases in that we know exactly who's at highest risk we can determine exactly who's most likely to break their hip, and we can now protect them. So similar to the auto industry, our government has spent billions in about two decades on fall prevention programs for the elderly. What I'm suggesting is we make that same strategic shift that the auto industry did, and we begin focusing on intelligent protection of our elderly. So they did their research and found a combination of accelerometers and other sensors on the band worn around the waist could deploy within six milliseconds of sensing an imminent fall. And protective bags unfurl around the hip joints before impact with the floor, significantly reducing the blow to the joint. Physics has taught us that bodies in motion stay in motion until they meet an immovable object, right? In this case, the immovable object is the living room floor. With the right technology, we can ensure that these people that meet that inevitable immovable object, which is the floor, can not only survive that accident, they can walk away. He founded Active Protect Technologies, and while his initial focus was providing a significant barrier to devastating injury in adults, he has additional potential markets as well. With this type of technology, we can protect against concussions. We can now protect Coumadin patients. We can protect postal workers when it's icy out. We can protect our military soldiers from IEDs. A simple retooling of airbag technology in a wearable device that could greatly reduce the devastation of hip fractures, leading to better health outcomes, lower health costs, and better quality of life. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.